Well, we have been walking through the book of Revelation. We started back in Revelation chapter 1, and we've been putting this timeline up on the screen so that we can kind of walk through and be reminded, kind of a recap of where we've been. And I encourage you today, we've got these, uh, uh, these Bible journals that we have been giving out. We've got more today out in the lobby. If you did not pick one up, you can grab one today. Actually, do we have them in the room? Okay, so we have, if you did not get one, uh, over the last few weeks, raise your hand and one of our guys will bring down uh, hand that to you. Now listen, really quick for everybody in the room, make sure you hang on to these and here's why. So this is an opportunity. It's obviously the book of Revelation and we're walking through. There's places there where you can take notes and that's an encouraging thing. But I want you to keep this after this series and here's why. It's a great resource you can always go back to. But over the next three years, we're going to walk through the entirety of the New Testament. We're going to walk through from Matthew all the way through the book of Revelation, and we're going to have these available, and we're going to be doing this so that when we're done in a few years, you're going to have a full set of God's Word with the notes from every sermon that we preach as we walk through verse by verse through the New Testament. This fall, starting in September, we're going to walk through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all the way through November, and we have a book that you'll have to keep up with that as well, and so you'll have a full set of the New Testament, all your notes, all the sermons, and that'll be something you'll be able to keep from now on. So make sure you hang on to these. Don't lose them. Don't throw them away. Don't throw them in a closet at home or a drawer at home. Everyone has that drawer at home that you throw something in, you never see stuff again. Don't do that. Let's make sure that we hang on to these journals. Now, we've been walking through the book of Revelation. Again, we started back in chapter 1, back in the first part of June, and we talked about John's vision of Jesus. And we talked about this picture that Jesus gave, his revelation, his message for John, and ultimately for the church, so that we would know exactly what it is that God has in store for us in this day and in every day to come for all of eternity. We then moved on to chapters 2 and 3. Matt walked us through the message to the churches, seven very real churches that existed 2,000 years ago that were walking through great crisis, great conflict, great issues, great problems, great division. And Jesus had a message for each of those churches on what you must do in order to be what God intended for you, for them to be, and for us even still today. We then walked on into chapters four through seven where Jesus began to unveil that future plan to tell us where we are going and what's going to happen and what it's going to look like in the days to come. We then moved to chapters 8 through 10 and we started walking through and talking through the, the seven trumpets of judgment, started, starting to talk through the, how, what that tribulation season and that tribulation period looked like. Then we walked on to chapters 11 and 12. We talked about the, the two witnesses we talked about how that the Antichrist killed these two people who were given supernatural power as they preached the gospel in Jerusalem and their message went out the, around the world and the Antichrist killed them, left them in the streets for three and a half days. They were resurrected and then ascended into heaven and then we know that at that moment the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of that seven year period began. We then walked into chapter 13 last week where we talked about the beast from the sea, and we talked about the beast from the earth. Those two people, the Antichrist and the false prophet, who in that last three and a half years, as we walk through Revelation chapter 13, as they began sharing this, this incredible vision that they had for the world and the destruction that came, 
the people who lost their lives. And we know that millions upon millions, billions of individuals had been wiped from the face of the earth by this time because of the great tribulation. We started talking last week about the mark of the beast. So you remember we ended in that passage in chapter 13 with that statement, 666, the number of the man. And that no one would be able to eat. No one would be able to buy things. No one would be able to function in that period of time in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. The great tribulation is what it's called. Unless you had that mark, which was the mark of the beast. And the false prophet was that one who carried out that vision, carried out that mission to destroy everything that God had intended. Now today we're going to be walking into chapter 14. And this is a cool part of the story because this is when we begin to see God's plan unfold. This is when we begin to see God changing the narrative, when we begin to see that the Antichrist and the false prophet with all of their great plans and all their vision for what they want the world to be, that we know and we see and we begin to get the revelation to us that God already has a plan and that God has already fulfilled his plan. And that's what chapter 14 is all about. And so you can see the juxtaposition between chapter 13 and chapter 14. That you have the Antichrist and the false prophet who are uh, accomplishing the things that they have, that they're killing people, they're destroying people, and if they're not worshiping the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, that they would lose their lives. People are, are, are being hurt. There's famine, there's drought, there's wars that are taking place. The, uh, the battle of Armageddon is, is launching and people are being destroyed all across the world, all because of what is taking place during this time as the Antichrist has turned the narrative from a message of peace to a message of war and a message of destruction. But yet here we find that in the midst of all of this, when people are literally running for the hills to hide themselves, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Remember when they were praying in those bowls, the, the, uh, in the judgments, the sealed judgments, they were praying for the rocks to actually come down and to hide them from God because of the, the, the judgment that was taking place. And yet in the midst of all of this, in chapter 14, we get this little interlude, this little break, this little moment where we see, oh, hey, don't worry. God is still in control. God is still in control. Kind of reminds me of kind of this picture of, of like these, these individuals come into battle and they think they're equal, but yet they're not. I remember back in like the 1972, 1973, uh, I had this great plan. My brother was doing it. He was playing uh, little league football for Vista Acre Raiders. So we lived over on Grove Road. And, and, and I had this great idea. My, my brother was playing, you know, uh, little league football. So I wanted to play little league football. I was like, I don't know, seven, six, seven, eight years old, that kind of thing. And man, I was so excited about playing football. And so I went out for the team. And, and in fact, last night I found a photo from that season in life when I was playing little league. And I think we've got that photo somewhere. Do we have, there it is right there. And so... So I'm about seven years old here, man, and I'm so excited. And you look at me there, man, I look tough. And I gotta be honest with you. I, I don't remember the day that was taken. I don't remember anything about the circumstances of that photo, but I do know this. I thought I was bad. I remember distinctly when that photo was taken, as I'm sitting there with that pose, man, I'm sitting there thinking I was a lineman, man. I was like big and bad, seven years old, big and bad. And man, I just thought I had everything under control and I was going to be the toughest person out on that field. And so, man, I was just, you can see that smile on my face and that smile was a smile of, of destruction. That smile is a smile. And man, I'm going to take out those people. Man, I'm going to, I'm going to destroy them. That's back, of course, when you played both sides, right? So offense, defense, man. Hey, Hugh, how do I look? Come on, seriously, right? 
Okay, so man, I'm looking tough, right? I'm, I'm looking awesome. But here's the idea. This is kind of the picture of what we see in chapter 13. That we see these people who come onto the scene, the Antichrist and the false prophet, who are all, you know, kind of, you know, kind of flexing a little bit, like, man, I'm in charge and I'm in control and I'm powerful and I'm mean and I'm tough. And man, the world better watch out because I'm in control. But it kind of reminds me that when you have this picture of me playing little league football, it's kind of the picture of chapter 14 if I were going up on the other side of the line against this guy. Because this guy is William the Refrigerator Perry. And for those of you who don't remember him, he played from about 1985, 1996, I think 10, 11 years he played in the NFL. He played for the Chicago Bears. He weighed 380 pounds, remember? And he actually used to carry the ball. He, you know, he was a lineman, but they used him as a running back occasionally. How, how do you remember watching him play? No one could take him down. No one could tackle him because he was just flat out huge, 380 pounds. And so he would go through that line. They always used him down the the five yard line and going in. And man, he would just run in for touchdowns every single time because nobody could stop him. Now think again about the picture. Go back to the picture of me. If I were lined up on the line and refrigerator Perry, the fridge came up and lined up across from me, that smile you see there, that smile is going to change. And in fact, you probably wouldn't even see the front of me. You would see the back of me as I'm running off the field to go hide because you know I'm going to get destroyed. Let me tell you something. That is exactly what we see in chapter 14. And the person running from the field is going to be Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet because no one can go up against our God. And that is the picture we see in chapter 14. And so we're going to jump into this passage in chapter 14 and we're going to see exactly what is revealed to us here. This week we're going to be chapter 14. Next week we'll be in chapters 15 and 16. And I'll be teaching from that passage going into this this final battle, the final battle of Armageddon. But here we get this picture of what is going to happen. And I love what Grant Osborne said. He said, Armageddon, the final battle, is not the final battle, but instead, it's the last act of defiance by an already defeated foe. By someone who's already destroyed, already defeated, and they know it, but yet they're going out on the field anyway because they're stupid. And by the way, I go on the record, Satan is stupid. He's smart, but he's stupid because he knows he's already been destroyed. And so let's read this passage going into Revelation chapter 14 as we begin to see again the picture of Refrigerator Perry going up against little seven-year-old Jonathan on the line, Jesus being represented by the fridge and Satan being represented by me. (laughs) I guess I shouldn't have used that illustration, right? Your pastor is Satan. Oh, you know, okay, we're not going to go on. So uh, Revelation chapter 14, what we begin to see is God's promise confirmed. Uh, page 48 on your journal. Here's what it says. And then I looked. Remember, this is John writing. He says, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as if it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except 
the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. We go back to verse 1 of Revelation chapter 14, and it says this And then I saw a Lamb. Now, you have to read that in the context of what we read last week, okay? So you have to take this picture, this opportunity of saying, so in chapter 13, the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, the beast from the earth, the false prophet, they show up, and they show up and they bring destruction, and they bring widespread, widespread pain and death. They are killing and destroying, and the war is breaking out, and countries are battling against countries, and that is what we see, and that is what we hear. But then John says, but then I saw a lamb. He saw Jesus. And he didn't just see Jesus in a vision like long, far away. He saw Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is a very real place. If you ever go to Israel, we're going next January. It's a great experience, and, and we'll be on Mount Zion. It's a, the highest point there in Jerusalem, right next to the Temple Mount, where David, when he defeated the Jebusites and, and created Jerusalem as the capital, there, right there is Mount Zion. And on Mount Zion, Jesus will be standing, and he will not be standing alone. He will be standing with 144,000. Remember Revelation chapter 7? We talked about the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. These are Jewish believers, people who came to Christ, Jews who came to Christ during the great tribulation, during that first three and a half years and then the, the, the seven-year tribulation period that they came to Christ. They're following after him. This passage we just read said they follow him everywhere they go. And they're standing there like the fridge, William Perry, standing at the line, looking across at Jonathan and saying, dude, you're going down. And that's what Jesus shows up to say. And he shows up on Mount Zion. And John sees him in this vision and he hears a song. And the song is not one that's coming from a boombox. It's not coming from an iPod. It's not coming from a, a radio. It's coming from heaven itself. And the song that he hears is a song that he does not recognize. It's a song that, that even the great worship that we had this morning, that it can't even do it justice. This song is so much greater and so much more impactful and important because this song is a song that is being sung by the people in heaven in the presence of the 24 elders in the presence of the four living beasts. Remember from Revelation chapter 4, in the throne room of God were the 24 elders. In the throne room of God were the, the four living creatures. And that song was emanating right from the presence of God himself. And that song is emanating now all across creation. It says the 144,000 were the only ones that could sing it. Why? Because people who do not know Christ cannot lift up their voices in honest worship of Christ. And so here we hear the song. We see this vision. And so John, right here in the middle of Revelation, and this inspiration, this revelation that Jesus gave to him, in the middle, uh, beginning where we're heading in the next couple of weeks, where we talk about that final battle, that battle of Armageddon and that final destruction. And here, again, we're given this one little minute, Charles' praise break, where we see that Jesus has arrived as the Lamb of God with a crown on his head, denoting the fact that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and no one will ever rule over him. And he's standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where, by the way, all the world is coming after Jerusalem to destroy during this time. We'll talk about that next week. And so right in the middle of ground zero, 
where the wars and the battles and the destruction are all focused on and zeroed in on Jerusalem. And Jesus shows up on Mount Zion, standing there with a a score, a music score behind him and 144,000 standing with him. And Jesus is standing there with a smile on his face, just saying, I got this. Aren't you encouraged to know that that's where we're headed? Yes, Satan might have his plans. Yes, the Antichrist might think he's got a great plan. The the false prophet might be leading people astray. Oh, but make no mistake, Jesus has always been in control. And so here we find the statement of God's promise is confirmed once again, Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Now you'll notice when he talks about the 144,000, going back to verse uh, verse one in this passage, it says, and hey, had they had their father's name or his father's name written on their foreheads. That's in contrast to what we saw in Revelation chapter 13 last week, which was the mark of the beast, right? So the mark of the beast was the only way they could buy things. But here the 144,000 are standing there having not taken the mark of the beast, but rather that they had the name of God on their forehead and they're standing there and the anthem begins. The song is sung and the beginning of the end has begun, that we're heading towards that great finish line where Christ returns and all of eternity is in the presence of God, which brings us to verse six, when God's gift is revealed. Look what it says in verse six. It says, then I saw another angel, John saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach those who dwell, to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now that's an interesting statement, but it's a fulfillment of prophecy. And this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus said, and the gospel will be preached all across the world. In every corner of the globe, the gospel will be preached and then the end will come. And so this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Now it's interesting here. Now remember now the two witnesses, they represented Christ for the first three and a half years before they were killed by the Antichrist and then ascended into heaven. The 144,000 Uh, there that that believed in Jesus, like they had been telling people and sharing the gospel, people are going to get saved. You remember we talked about that a few weeks ago, the great multitude of those who come to Christ during the tribulation period, the gospel will be preached. But now we have reached a new day. Now we've reached a new moment because now the gospel is not going to be preached by the witnesses. The gospel is not going to be preached by the 144,000. In the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy, the angel himself will be preaching the gospel. The scriptures say that he will be in the, the mid heavens. In other words, he'll be literally in a place that is in the heavens, like at the highest point of the sky. And I don't know exactly how that's going to happen. I don't know if we'll actually see a, a physical angel that will be flying through the sky and, and pronouncing the gospel all around the world. But here's what I know. Regardless of how that will be fulfilled, God's word says, and the angel will preach the gospel to every corner of the globe. Now that's a great thing because people will still come to Christ. Now the gospel won't be preached by humans. It will be preached by heaven itself. J. Vernon McGee said this about this season and time. He said, the times are so intense in the great tribulation period that only the angels can get the messages of God through to the world. Why? 
because angels are indestructible. And so here we see this picture that we have finally turned the corner where our mission, the great commission of taking the gospel around the world, our job is done. Now the church, those of us in this room, that the rapture will be gone. We won't be experiencing this. We'll be in heaven. But those who get saved during the tribulation period, man, they're going to share the gospel and they're going to be passionate about it. You talked about the, talked about the 144,000, like they're going to share it. But now we've even moved beyond where now their job is not to share the gospel anymore. Now it's up to the angels and the angels preach the gospel around the world. Now that sounds awesome, but here's the problem. The problem again is because we go back to that fulfillment of prophecy. Because what did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And the gospel will be preached in every corner of the globe and then the end will come. So in other words, at this point in time, at this point in the moment, like everything changes because now anybody who's keeping score, anybody who's keeping up, anybody who happens to be reading the book of Revelation during this seven year period of time, they have to sit back and think, "Uh uh-oh, it's about to get real. Because now God's judgment begins. Look in verse 8 and following. It says, And then another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. I want to pause right there for a moment. Now, this we're going to get into this uh, in chapter 16, 17, and 18 about Babylon. But you know that Babylon is, a, is an ancient city. We go back to you know, Nebuchadnezzar and Nimrod, and you go all the way back to Revelation chapter, or, sorry, Genesis chapter 11, when Babylon first came on the scene. And what did they do in Genesis chapter 11? The people of Babylon began to build something. Can anybody tell me what they began to build in Genesis 11? The Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel was the opportunity that people came together to build something as a counterfeit religion because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to actually build something, not what God built, but what they, men, could build. And it started there. So going all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, that began. In the revelation season, in the tribulation period that we're talking about, and again, we're going to be talking about that in a couple of weeks. That's exactly what happens again. The Antichrist will rebuild a new structure, and that new structure, both religious, governmental, financial, will all be a modern-day Babylon. Now, it probably will not be the same city that's on the, the edge of the Euphrates River. It will probably not be that same location in Iraq. Some people think it might be a a rebuilding of the Roman Empire. Others think that it might be some other way of doing that. But regardless, the Antichrist will build a brand new Babylon. And here in this passage, in verse 8, we read this statement. God's judgment begins. It says, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen. He is not talking about the Babylon of the Old Testament. He's not talking about the Babylon that was destroyed thousands of years prior to this season, whenever this might be. He is talking about the Babylon that the Antichrist has rebuilt, this new Babylon. So in other words, when he says Babylon is fallen, the picture that he's given is this. It's a foregone conclusion. Count on it. Babylon is done. Another statement that comes from the angels and from heaven itself. Hey, whatever the Antichrist has built, it's coming down. Count on it. It's done. Verse 9. And then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath 
of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Now, that's a lot of words and a lot of statements in there, but you've got to reference and go back in the Old Testament. Judgment was always referenced or illustrated by talking about drinking the cup of judgment. You can go back in many places in the Old Testament and see over and over again that picture uh, of that statement of the cup of judgment, the cup of wrath, the cup of God's wrath. Uh, Ed Heinsohn said it this way, the cup of wrath represents the final and irrevocable judgment of God against the unbelieving and the unrighteous. This final judgment will be without mercy. Thomas says to imbibe of this cup is tantamount to eternal torment in fire and brimstone. The reference is to fire and brimstone, the smoke of their torment, and no rest day and night point ahead to the lake of fire. Here we get a picture of Jesus, who we've seen Jesus as Savior. We've seen Jesus as Messiah. We're going to see, and we've already seen Jesus as king, but here we see Jesus as judge, which is a very real job description that Jesus has. Let's keep reading this passage, verse 10. He himself, well, we've already read that. Verse 11, it goes on to say, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, we pause right there. We read that a moment ago. Fire and brimstone will come down that they will have forever tormented in smoke. This is a very literal, real picture of what hell is like. Hell is not some figurative thing, some symbolic thing. Hell is not, you know, some statement that is an ethereal kind of idea of what, you know, judgment is going to look like or separation from God is going to look like. Let me make this very clear. And I know a lot of preachers and a lot of churches today don't talk about this. But let me just tell you right now, because God's word talks about it, we're going to talk about it. Hell is a real place. And the Bible is very clear that anyone who dies without accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will step into a very real place called hell. A place called hell that is full of fire and brimstone and smoke and torment and pain and suffering and as other passages of scripture talking about, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is a place for eternity that people will suffer Eternal damnation in this very real place called hell. When we, the church of Jesus Christ, can come to a place where we recognize and understand the reality of hell, it should burn in our hearts the passion to share the gospel with everyone we know because we should not want anyone to spend eternity there. We should not want anyone to have to experience what the Bible talks about, that place of eternal torment. And so here we are given once again, in many places in scripture, we're given once again this picture. Hell is real. We continue reading verse 12. But here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Now, there are often times that that verse is a verse that is used at funerals, and it's used incorrectly when it is. Because this verse is not a verse to talk about people who die today. We, Matt read and shared a few moments ago. We had a number of people in our church this week who passed away. And, and certainly we pray for their families. And, and we know that the promise of heaven to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Psalm 116, 15, it precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. That's a very real uh, promise that God gives to us that, that once we take our last breath here, that we take our first breath with him. But here, 
The message that Jesus has given to John is write this because, again, as this battle unfolds, as this, this war unfolds, and really a better statement is the war of Armageddon, not the battle of Armageddon, because it's a, a skirmish that lasts over a period of time, not because Jesus was waiting, but because the Antichrist is waging war. And so here we see this picture that what Jesus is saying, and now when the battle is real, and when the Antichrist and the false prophet and the people of, of Satan, when they kill people and destroy people who follow Christ, who've accepted Christ during the tribulation period, as that happens now, here's what Jesus says. Even in this moment, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Even in the midst of the great tribulation, Jesus is saying, listen, if you trusted me, I'll take care of you. Man, what an amazing story. What an amazing promise. That's what Leon Morris talks about when he says a consideration of ultimate realities sustains the people of God. They must pass through troubles, but they know that their troubles are temporary, whereas those of their tormentors will be eternal. A key promise, a key statement. As we continue reading this passage, then we get to the point where Jesus turns the story, turns the page, and the narrative changes. And that's when one day becomes two day. Look what it says in verse 14. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. In case you're wondering who that is, you can highlight that, underline that. That's Jesus. One like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple of heaven, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, let me make sure you understand exactly what we've just read. At this point now, Jesus comes. And Jesus arrives again at this time of battle, of war, of Armageddon, to bring an ending to the attack of the Antichrist, the attack of the false prophet, ultimately the attacks of Satan. And Jesus arrives, and in his hand is a sickle, on his head is a crown. He comes as king. He comes as sickle judge. And here he says, it's time to thrust the sickle into the earth. And what is that talking about? It's talking about the time of the ultimate destruction. It's talking about the ending of this reign of terror on this earth by Satan and his forces. Danny Aiken says it this way, the divine heavenly terminator has come. Judgment day has arrived and it cannot be delayed. God's wrath comes via the lamb, Jesus. God's wrath comes on time. The ministry of mercy is over. Sowing the seed of the gospel is at an end and tomorrow or someday is now today. In the church going back 2000 years, there's always been a statement. I've used it on this stage. One day, one day, one day, the church will be raptured. One day, Christ will return. One day, and we don't know when that is. Someday, this is going to happen. But here, we're reading about when one day becomes now. When someday becomes today. And the end is in sight. And the final battle begins. Verse 17 of Revelation chapter 14. And then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. 
So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine on the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now what is this talking about? This is talking about the ending for the Antichrist, the ending for the false prophet, the ultimate defeat of Satan. It's talking about the imagery of of thrusting the sickle into the earth and and bringing out the vine and and throwing the the grapes into the great wine press and and that they will be uh, smashed. It goes, of course, a picture back in those days that that's how they would get their juice, their grape juice. That's how they would make their wine. And they would, they would put all the vines into, all the, the grapes into a vat. And they would actually get in there and they would walk around on top of those grapes and squeeze those grapes. And the juice would run out of the grapes down into a hole and down into a little trough outside. And it would run out into, and that's where they would collect it. And here, that's the imagery that's given. And the angel says, go and, and thrust that sickle into the earth because the earth is ripe. It's ready to be harvested. And then it goes on to say that the blood from that harvesting, because this is not talking about grapes. This is talking about battle. It's talking about war. It's talking about people. And it says that the blood will run to the bridles of the horses. And these are not like little miniature horses that are really cute that you've seen at the circus. No, these are full-size horses. Four to five feet And it says it will run for 1,600 furlongs. Well, how long is that? About 184 miles it will run. It will basically run through the entire Jezreel Valley, going all the way into the north by Dan and Israel, all the way down to the south. You can visit that place today, the valley, the Jezreel Valley. I've been there many times. We'll be going there next January. And you can walk into that place that, that there you can find the, 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 the mound or the Mount of Megiddo. You can go and visit that ancient ruin. It's kind of cool because right next to the Mount of Megiddo, they've actually built a McDonald's. So we'll have somewhere to eat if we happen to show up in the battle that day. But you'll have to eat quick because once the blood comes in, the food probably won't be any good. But regardless, that valley is 184 miles long and the blood will run four to five feet high. Why? Because when God shows up as the ultimate judge, no one will be able to win except for God and Satan will be defeated. And that is the picture of where we're going. And in the next few weeks, as we walk into chapters 15 and 16, 17, 18, 19, we're going to see what that battle looks like. We're going to see what Babylon looks like when it falls. We're going to talk about how the Antichrist is defeated. We're going to talk about how Satan is ultimately cast away and put away for the ultimate uh, defeat that will come later. We see all this picture and all of this judgment. And some people might sit back and think, well, wait a minute. Why is it that all this judgment has to happen? Isn't our God a God of love? Absolutely our God is a God of love. And only a God of love would give us every single opportunity to accept the free gift that he gives through his son Jesus Christ so that we would not have to face the damnation, the torment, and hell that is coming. So we would not have to face that, that we would have the opportunity of stepping into the presence of God for all of eternity and hearing that anthem being played and the harps being played, that song being sung, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Only a God who loves would be a God who would give us who are not worthy the opportunity of stepping into that place rather than going where we deserve. 
So don't sit back and tell me a God of love can't do this. A God of love could not allow this judgment to happen. A God of love certainly would not allow that destruction to take place. Absolutely. And here's why. Because the God that we talk about is a holy God. And a holy God cannot tolerate sin. And a holy God that cannot tolerate sin is the only God worth believing in. And that's the God who has given us the great opportunity through trusting in Christ and Christ alone of stepping into his presence forever. And so today, the last statement that I could give to you from Revelation chapter 14, which is just a little Cliff's note version of what is to come in the chapters ahead. The only thing that I could give you is what Warren Wiersbe said far better than I. And he said these words, better to reign with Christ forever than with Antichrist for a few short years. Jesus came so we would not have to experience the pain and the suffering and the torment that's to come. Jesus came so that we would not have to go through what we are reading about. Jesus came so that through believing in him that he died for our sins on the cross. That while every single one of us in this room, we deserve to walk into that judgment. We deserve to face that sickle of judgment that we just talked about. We deserve to go through the torment of hell for eternity. We deserve that. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of our sin the punishment of our sin, a better way of saying it, what you deserve is death, which is eternal separation from a holy God because we do not deserve to be in his presence because of our sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our God is a God of love because only a God of love would look at you and me in the eye with all of our failings and all of our sin and he would look at us and say, I love you anyway and I want to spend eternity with you. So just believe. Let's pray. God, today we are overwhelmed by your love. We don't get it. We don't understand it. Certainly don't deserve it. Nothing that we could ever do could bring us into a place of, of being righteous enough or good enough. But God, we just stand here today and in our disbelief that you would actually do something like this for us, God, that we rejoice in the fact that you sent your son Jesus to give us a way out. As we read through these passages in the book of Revelation that clearly tell us what the end of the world looks like. God, I'm grateful that because of Christ, we will not face one moment in the day of tribulation. That we will not have to walk through one second of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that's to come. That while that destruction is taking place on this earth, that because of Jesus, through believing in him, that we will be standing in your presence and we will be singing the words of that song, holy, holy, holy. But God, we also recognize in reading this passage that 
There's a great sorrow that's to come for those who don't know Christ. And so I pray today, Lord, for the person in this room, and I don't know who they are, that is not completely certain of their salvation. That they've never come to the place where they have believed and trusted that Jesus is Lord, that he died for their sins and rose again for them. And that by believing in them as in him as your son, that that they can find life eternal. God, I know there's someone here today who's not done that. I know there's someone watching who's not done that. I know there's someone listening who's not done that. God, I pray right now in this moment in urgency because we're not promised tomorrow. God, I pray this would be the moment that they say, we believe. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, the Bible is very clear and I've shared it today multiple times that in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow to come, Jesus has given us a way out. And that way out is through believing that Jesus is God's son, that he died and that he rose again. That's what Romans chapter 10 tells us about. That if we believe. And so today, I know there's someone in this room who's never come to that place and said, yeah, I believe. Man, you may have been in church your whole life, but never have said, I believe Jesus is God's son. I believe he died and rose again for me. So today, forgive me of my sins. Save me today through your son, Jesus, that you've never done that. I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And as I pray this prayer, if you're seated in this room or watching by television, listening by radio, and you've never prayed that prayer, if you cannot say with all certainty, I know I'm going to spend eternity in heaven, I encourage you today to pray this prayer with me silently from your heart to God's. Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. I do not deserve to be in your presence. I deserve eternity in hell. But thank you, God, that you loved me anyway. Thank you, God, you sent your son, Jesus. Thank you that he died and rose again for me. Today, forgive me of my sins. Save me today through your son, Jesus. Today, I believe in Jesus. And help me to live for you for the rest of my life. And thank you, God, for the promise of heaven for all eternity. Thank you for saving me. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, looking around this room with no one looking around but me. If you prayed that prayer in this room, in this moment, in this room, and you meant it from your heart to God's with no one looking around except for me and the, the individuals, this team members that are standing at the front along with me, no one looking around but us. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it right now, would you just slip your hand up in this room right now and say, yes, I prayed that prayer. I see hands. I see hands everywhere. Man, what a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. With your hands raised and you made that decision, let me just tell you now. I know that everything in the world is going to try to keep you from following through with that decision. Don't let Satan get the victory. Because when you trust in Jesus Christ and you trust him, Satan doesn't have a chance. And so if you prayed that prayer and you've raised your hand, would you just stand wherever you are right now in this room? With no one looking around, if you prayed that prayer, would you just stand? Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Just stand up wherever you are right now.
I saw lots of hands go up. Not seeing as many people standing right now, and I get it, like pressure, like, man, what will people think? We will think that's awesome. We'll celebrate with you if you prayed that prayer. And so we're gonna conclude our service right now, and if you're standing right now, let me just tell you, with no one looking around, we rejoice with you. We celebrate with you. And I'm gonna ask uh, our team right down front here, if you guys would, just grab a start book, and would you just walk out and just stand next to those who are standing? Just walk out and give them that book right now. No one looking around but me and, and the individual standing with me at the front. Just keep standing. This is awesome. This is incredible. What a gift. What an amazing promise. What an amazing hope that we have because of Christ. So guys, if you would just walk out right now, and if you raised your hand and you're not standing, hey, this would be a great time to say, you know what? I don't care what people think. I'm going to stand because I'm telling you, the people in this room are going to rejoice with you. And so as these individuals and, and guys, if you would, Ed, 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 right back, there's three right in the back there, four in the back there. If, if somebody could go back there, it'd be awesome, Ian. And, and just stay there with, stay with them, if you would. So the people, go stay with them, guys. Yeah, go stand with them. I want you to talk to them in a moment because we're going to conclude the service. And, and uh, ma'am, if, if you just, right back here, there's a lady right here. If you just go stand with this lady right here, perfect, great, thank you. And Ian, head back there, perfect. God, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the hope that comes in Christ and Christ alone. And God, I pray right now for those who made that decision today, we rejoice and heaven rejoices because they have the promise and the hope of heaven for all of eternity. Thank you, God, for that gift. And I pray that as we walk from this place today, God, let us walk out of here with joy in our hearts because we know that no matter what Satan might have planned, God has already won. Satan has already been defeated and Jesus is king. And God, for that, we give you the praise. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you guys for being here. Let's celebrate with those who prayed that prayer. And what a great gift that is. Next week, Revelation 15 and 16, I'll be preaching from there. God bless you. Have a great day. Our altar's open. We'd love to talk with you. Have a good day. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.